Jim Joyce. This is hey. the longest ever <laughs> season nine because we've just been <laughs> missing and skipping and the whole premise of us getting through right. the week while we were locked up in one place right. was great. Now right. I feel like you cheating on me. I'm cheating on you getting out to other people. <laughs> Podcast galore. You're like, talking kind about of, numbers. The kids, they were like kids, like kind of all of a sudden now we're, we're being let out, running around conferences, exactly. talking. <laughs> and but, what, tell me, tell, what, tell me. No, I was going to say, but the show must go on, even though maybe not as consistently as we would like, but right. the show must go on. Right. The world needs a shot of digital health. Once a week yeah. is the prescribed behavior, but we've been unable to adhere to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, in, in, as far as the news, because we're so scrounged on time, uh, I haven't sure. seen anything out there. The only thing that I just flashed, I, I just went to LinkedIn and I opened up. So congrats to the 9am health team, Frank and team, the, the ex my sugar founders that just raised 16 million bucks. Uh, wow. for diabetes patients so congrats and our friends at seven wire uh co-led the round so uh okay. yeah that's how, honestly like literally i just saw this like five minutes ago and i you know love the team and uh so that's awesome awesome stuff um yeah yeah i don't have much going on i mean i just wondered like is, is there you know i still listen to you know jessica and um our friends Matt. yeah Matt, <laughs> Matt, Matthew Matt's, Holt. yeah you know, kind of updated the news. The news kind of feels like it's kind of morphing together for me. It just seems like there's probably so much activity that the big deals kind of don't feel like big anymore. Or sometimes they do. Um, maybe it's just, I'm just distracted. Uh, you know what? We'll, we'll, we can chat with, with Joe, with Joe Connolly, who's going to join us. I'm going to let him in because right. he's also kind of, you know, not that he's tracking every deal, but I think he'll have some good stuff to talk about. Um, you know, we just had a whole discussion of him with a banker where the spigot is it open still with these crazy right. valuations or not? But anyway, we can uh, once we introduce Joe. Joe, welcome. Hey, Joe. Hey, James. How are you both? So Hi, Jim, nice to meet you. Jim, Jim, meet Joe. Joe, meet Jim. Um, you know, good, good to have you finally on the Shadow Digital Health. Welcome. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad you made the time for me. Great to meet you. Jim. <laughs> Yeah, nice to meet you, Joe. I'm looking forward to hearing about Visana. Oh, I said that right, Visana. You know that. Uh, <laughs> awesome. But, but, but before awesome. we, but before we, yeah, I know that's that's a tough one, right? Uh, Visana, <laughs> yeah. It, I think it sounds like it's spelled right, pretty much. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I think you know, Joe. Uh, I I don't know. I mean, we've certainly met on Twitter and always enjoyed the commentary and, and, you know, we, we had a number of calls and like the premise of this show is that it's, you know, somebody from mine or Jim's network and we just shoot the shit every Wednesday. Right. So that's, that's the beauty of it. Meticulously unproduced. Uh, so welcome Joe. And for the millions of viewers and listeners, give us a little bit of, of, the, of your background kind of, and however you want to, you know, tell it, no, you know, no rules. No yeah, rules. So like you, Eugene, I came from a large uh, med device corporation. So not pharma, but med device. And I'm sure we have lots of trials and tribulations that we could share of how hard it is to innovate within, within, a, within a large company. And so I was doing a little bit of strategy work, a little bit of portfolio development and M&A. And then back in 2014, 2015, people kind of came to me and said, hey, this digital health thing is, 
you know, starting to get hot. I was the person that people would go to internally when they didn't really know and they had this big, hairy, ambiguous problem and I could go try to tackle it and figure it out. And so that was how I originally got into the digital health space more broadly. And I had a really successful project while I was at this company where we scaled a digital health company to about 20 or 30 different hospitals. And I saw the power that digital health solutions could bring in terms of massively improving patient outcomes, especially when you align different stakeholder incentives. And so this particular product was in the wound care space. And I have this story that really stuck out in my mind about how one guy who is in his 40s had had a venous ulcer for 20 years and it was really debilitating his life and we got his ulcer healed within six months by driving him to proper care and he was just so incredibly thankful we had lots of one-on-one -on -one conversations with him he would tell us about how he could run up the hill again with his kids and he'd never wow. been able to do that before he was considering having his leg amputated oh. and my North Star has always been about improving patient outcomes. And I saw, you know, it didn't really matter if you were using our stint or a competitor stint, they were basically the same thing at the end of the day. And that getting the right patient, the right care at the right time was really what we needed to do to improve healthcare outcomes. And so that's how I got in the, the virtual care space more broadly and then decided to apply uh, that skill set that I had learned to conditions that impacted my mom, my aunt, my grandma. So what Fasana Health does is we focus on women's health conditions outside of the fertility and maternity continuum. And um, so these are conditions like endometriosis, uterine fibroids. And to give you a little flavor about how these conditions impact people's lives, my mom had such excruciating pain when she was on her period that she'd be vomiting for three or four days out of every single month. And she just could not get any semblance of care for the better part of three decades, like just was dismissed and told that it was a normal part of being a woman. And so basically I took that professional experience that I had along with, you know, what had happened to my family members and founded Vasana out of that. Amazing. And did this did this company you work for have a name that won before? <laughs> it was you're, you're out of. I was going to say you're it's out of your NDA. Yes, <laughs> it's a great company. Okay, Boston Scientific. Yeah, I thought it was at the stents and the. Um, yeah. And, and so were you based what? out of Boston? I'm based out of Minneapolis. Actually, the majority of Boston Ooh. Scientific is based out of Minneapolis from acquisitions. So it's it's MedTech Central up here. I love Minneapolis. Big fan of Minneapolis. And oh, do you know our buddy John Brownlee? I do. I do know oh, John. And I usually love <laughs> Minneapolis too, but it's snowing today and it's mid-April. So this is the time of year I hate Minneapolis and I question why I live here. Come, yeah, come, yeah. I was going to say come to Barcelona, but it's actually cold <laughs> and rainy, which they lied to us when, when they told us come to Barcelona. It's nice and warm, right? So uh, yeah. it's, but, yeah, it's um, spring. It's spring in Dublin. Come by for a pint of Guinness in Dublin here. Yeah, I would <laughs> love tapas. that. <laughs> Before we get deeper into Visana, I, you know, uh, and, and absolutely, I joke around. I think people heard me say it like I lost most of my hair during the pharma days, uh, even though that's not true, but uh, pushing kind of non-molecular uh, <laughs> therapies in the molecular world. But, um, you know, kind of back up, how did you even get into the kind of the strategy role? And then I actually want to switch to like, you know, well, coming out of the big company, how does that, what that taught you being an entrepreneur, right? And of course, working with, you know, you know what, what you helped scale, right, across. So first, how did you get into the strategy work? 
Yeah, I got lucky to be 100% honest. So I was in graduate school at Duke and talked to the right person at a career fair who brought me in and liked me. And so I did an internship at Boston Scientific initially and I think just did a really good job and then landed the role, uh, continued to work while I was finishing grad school and then started full-time right after that. So to be 100% honest, just dumb luck. Um, and kind of business, were you in business or uh, or some kind of medical grad school or what were you studying? I was studying biomedical engineering. So um, ooh, ooh, my, my degrees are both in engineering and I have done zero engineering over the, since I graduated I, with those degrees. I, I bet you if, did a, if you did an analysis, Eugene, if you did like a survey of like top, you know, kind of digital health execs, biomechanical engineers would be like way up there. Yeah, I think it's, it's people <laughs> that love the medical side of things and then they love to build things. So it kind of is, it's a I, natural fit. Kinda, yeah, like oh. three of my top executives have that kind of degree. So every time I hear that, I'm always like, oh, great. Come work for Health Beacon. All world. <laughs> that, that's yeah, interesting. I actually never thought of it that way. But I, I guess, you know, like I'm just thinking to myself, like I, I got tech background too, right? Before even getting right. into healthcare, right? So uh, I joke around. I mean, yeah, that I, kind of engineering. Yeah, they, like I coded systems, infrastructure stuff, like, you know, uh, but right. but I don't remember, I like I'm not even good enough to be dangerous at all now like um you know but, um, you, you, you fire the podcast up in like four minutes you know like your podcast this will go right away i, I have this, this i have yet. this pretty automated i just press end and then the rest <laughs> happens right like i got a chat the ai that does the text oh, i i wish it I, I wish it did but um but it is meticulously produced so i don't pay any attention to the few lines that we do but uh but, but but back to Joe. Uh, so luck is part of it, and I we always say it's hard work and a little bit of luck, right? Uh, or the the reverse. And what were like a lesson that you took out of scaling, basically a, a startup slash company, I guess spin off, spin out, or wherever you look at it. The wound uh, care product, yeah. The wound yeah. care, which our, our friend Chris Henderson, I uh, we need to actually get him. Uh, he's still in wound care, I think. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I think some lessons out of that is at Boston Scientific, in my view, was very payer focused or very health system focused. And we were trying to focus on the, the incentives of those stakeholders and making sure that we had a win from a sales proposition. So I learned a lot about what those stakeholders are looking for, how they're evaluating products. And I think that's been really instrumental to Vasana's success so far because we, I can speak the language and know how to talk to these people. I think the thing that I was very shocked by was how hard it was to get patients to engage in digital products. I think that's mm. where we really struggled. And I think it's because we were taking too hard on the B2B side of things and we weren't focusing on the end user and the consumer enough. And so right. that was a, a really big takeaway for me from that experience is that you really have to be focused on the end user to be able to really drive engagement, which is ultimately a surrogate for the value that your product is bringing. Because if people don't use it, then there's no value there. I think you just, but I think you just in one comment like just summarize the challenge of scale scaling digital healthcare companies it's like you know the the idea that a small organization could uh, maintain this incredibly you know kind of nuanced enterprise selling capability you know to navigating a big organization and at the same time you know compete with the best consumer technology out out there like it's just isn't that the the problem yeah yeah 
It's, it's really hard. And I think some people lean too hard on the consumer side of things. And then when they try to cross the chasm into the enterprise, they don't have a, a clear enough value statement to drive adoption. And then others go too hard on the enterprise and don't have a, con a compelling enough consumer value proposition to drive any adoption on the consumer side. So it's, it's really hard to be able to marry those two things up in a, in a really clean way. What's your secret? What's your secret for tackling the enterprise or the bigger organization or so I was lucky enough at Boston Scientific to know a lot of those stakeholders. And like I said, we were mapping out all their different product adoption pathways and really trying to understand what are the, the key fundamental business drivers of how they're evaluating products. And it's, it's no, should be obvious, but they're evaluating them monetarily. So you can bring clinical value, you can be, bring patient satisfaction value, but ultimately you need a monetary value statement to those enterprises to really drive adoption. And so I think that is the most important thing on that side that people, especially ones that don't have a lot of healthcare experience, have a lot of learnings about, you know, what are the incentives? How do people actually make money and how do those things all align? Because even if you're bringing a lot of value to patients, that doesn't mean that an enterprise is going to care about you at all, unfortunately. Right, right. Um, you know, before you, we kind of let you in, we just started talking about, you know, the new cycle and it seems like, you know, these a hundred plus million deals, uh, you know, maybe not dried up completely, but certainly, you know, the spigot seems to be closing and you're one of the few entrepreneurs, Joe, that I've been kind of watching. You've been just hacking away, you know, to a certain extent, bootstrapping. I think you got, you guys just recently did a round. I, I don't remember the dynamics of it, but your thoughts and observation, because you're also keen on, you know, the channels and the reimbursements and the engagement strategies. And so I've been, you know, enjoying watching and, and participating in the discussions with you, at least online, but I'll pause. Lots yeah, I've got a lot of thoughts on this. I've got I I have a blog post that's coming out here. So I think that there are not every company, and this isn't me trying to undermine any of those large funding rounds, but I think we've seen, we saw a lot of people that raised a lot of money at very extraordinarily high valuations that might have, they might've been able to drive really strong consumer adoption and be able to show that there's a demand on the consumer side. I think what I struggle with on pure direct consumer business models is I think the margins are really going to erode over time because I don't think there's very much defensibility. And so I think as those large funding rounds came out, I think we started to see more and more competitors pop up in the spaces where there were those large funding rounds. And now all of a sudden your customer acquisition cost from the direct to consumer side of things is just going to explode. And so everybody is now trying to figure out, well, if you know the funding is going to dry up, then we're going to have to figure out the B2B side of things and figure out how to get in network or how to sell to self-funded employers. And those channels, like I said, you just you can't simply just push a direct to consumer product mark uh, product over into the B2B channels just because you're getting good outcomes and patient engagement. There's there's a lot more to those sales channels than that. And so I take the approach that defensibility is going to be the right long-term play. And even though um, it takes a very long time and it's very hard to be successful in those B2B engagements, that embedding yourself within the, the broader healthcare ecosystem, both the payers and the providers, is going to be really critical for business, business success in the long term. So you see defensibility as integrating and embedding yourself with the payer provider? Is that... 
I think those, and it it depends. Some people are just taking standard fee-for-service contracts, right? So it's, they're taking a provider contract, maybe getting Medicare rates. Um, Again, I think that's not a very high margin business at the end of the day. And they're being valued at SaaS multiples with a company that have very high margins when you're, you don't necessarily have those margins. And so I think there's a little bit of dissonance there between the margins of the business and the, the ultimate valuation. And I think people kind of saw it as a land grab where, you know, if we just pump a bunch of money into this company that they'll be able to drive patient volumes in a way that is going to be defensible. But I'm not, I'm not sure if that's true, especially when a lot of the services that are being offered are people are basically selling the prescriptions and the drugs more than the medical care and the care model, which at that point, it's a commodity because you're just pushing a drug and people can shop against, you know, who's going to be able to provide me the the most uh, cost-effective service. And then that's a race to the bottom. You know, and just before we get maybe or not deeper into the whole payer and engagement and all of that, you know, something interesting you said around DTC, and that's another topic that I know we had discussion here with Chris Hogg, and I know, Joe, you were part of it, kind of the leg, Legos of healthcare and being able to, to, in today's world, literally just take, you know, wheel or SteadyMD or open loop, um, right, for docs, um, you know, selfish promotion of health coaches in the box, right? Um, you know, many, you know, credentialing service uh, and literally assemble all the puzzle pieces, get a hundred million round uh, and I'm picking a random number and then, you know, do your CAC, right? Uh, advertise the shit out of the service, direct to consumer and then service it via this. Now, to your point, what's, what's ultimately the defensibility there, right? In that direct to consumer model. I, you know, I'm just trying to play in with a Legos component and your thoughts on it. 100%. I mean, some companies are basically just a really thin UX that drives customer acquisition and then everything else out on the back end is completely outsourced. And so the value then becomes your marketing, which is easily copyable um, because everything else has been outsourced. And then those, those Legos, everybody else can use too. So it's, there's, there's no barrier to entry there at the end of the day. And it's actually lowered the cost to start a new company in the space because you can, you know, slap together hundreds of thousands of dollars and, you know, be off the ground in a couple of states fairly easily. Mm. That's pretty, yeah. And, and what, what, when you think about, so, so you think about kind of really building out your tech stock, tech stack in a really meaningful way. Is that part of it so that you kind of own the full puzzle pieces? Yeah, I think from a tech perspective, the way that we really view ourselves is we are trying to drive a really differentiated care model. So we are a healthcare company out the, at the core and the technology is a wrapper that enables the care model that we want to be built. Um, despite the fact that there are all these building blocks, I still don't think that they're there in the, the level of maturity that we want them to be at. And I think we're taking a little bit of a differentiated care model because we're trying to provide longitudinal and continuous care for people with chronic conditions. So we want people to see the same doctor every single time. We want people to, you know, we want to follow up at certain time points to check how people are doing, provide a lot of asynchronous care that's um, very customized based on the, the patient's condition and based on their care plan and get them funneled back into our clinical algorithms when necessary. And so I think a lot of the companies out there can be transactional in nature, where it's, I want this prescription, I get the prescription, and then they're generating revenue from delivering that prescription to someone's door. And we are really trying to build a care model where the, the product is the care and not the prescription. Have you heard this thing? You ever heard this term spoonie? Spoonie, I haven't heard of that, that? no. <laughs> you haven't heard about that, that? It's kind of- I don't of think a, I've heard it either. 
It's for I've people heard that are in spooning, <laughs> but that's something different. <laughs> I don't. Maybe I was watching the wrong TikTok video. But it's the um, it the uh, it's 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 for people that have chronic pain. I I just seen it because we've hired these patient ambassadors recently in my company, and um, and I see them referring kind of you know they're referring to each other as like so so people that are suffering from long term chronic pain. Maybe I have this right. We have to check this out. But we have to check this out whether I'm, I'm quoting it correctly. But I was thinking you would know about what a spoonie was. I've been dying to ask someone. <laughs> I, I have heard of it. Yet yeah, now that you say that, it's 100 right. It's like they they refer to themselves those ways. It's like a, a nickname. Okay, got it, got it. Okay, Jim. But don't worry. We're meticulously unproduced, and this is the fake news <laughs> channel of digital health. So you know, like... <laughs> right. so so, how have you found the funding market? you know, in terms of raising capital? Because I, I hear people talking about, other than if, unless, unless you're Eugene, it's always a slog, you know, like he just, you know, he snaps his finger and money flows out of him. Oh yeah, of course, of course, yeah. <laughs> yeah, just like, just like everybody else. Uh, how, how have you found it? I've always found it. I've raised a lot of money in my time for different companies. And I think from the outside, it's like your Facebook photos, like every your life looks great on the inside. You're like, a, you know, you're like a duck flapping in water. How have you found it? <laughs> Uh, the exact way that you just described it. I mean, it's <laughs> despite the fact that you're seeing all these million, you know, hundreds of million dollar raises, that's, I don't think that's the experience of a, of a normal entrepreneur, so to speak. I think some of these people, particularly second time entrepreneurs and people that have had really big exits have found it easier to raise in this type of environment. But for first time entrepreneurs who are still getting their, you know, feet underneath them, I think that's where it can be a little bit more difficult. And I think the, you know, money just being showered down from the heavens is not what it, what is actually happening on the ground for the vast majority of people. Good to, hear, I, <laughs> good to hear, because I was wondering if it was just me. <laughs> <laughs> You know, uh, and and again, right? There's something to be said. Um, you know, Maria and I just had a call around uh, similar question, like, well, why haven't you guys raised more money, right? The question is always, for what and at what point, and what are we trying to prove at a particular milestone, right? Um, and so, again, just because on paper the company might be worth X, right? Um, that doesn't mean that you're actually executing properly, right? And 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 I do think that the fundamentals of actually, uh, you know, I love your word of defensibility of a defensible business will come back. And if, if it's not here already, honestly, right. Uh, I think the stuff that we're still seeing as far as the deals, I think it's kind of, I'll say the leftover for lack of a better term. Right. Um, but you know, let, let, let's see. Um, let's switch gears from DTC maybe to kind of the, your thoughts on uh, VBC versus fee for service. And, you know, we've been talking about VBC for ages and ages and ages. I thought I saw or like less than very small percentage of, of payments in US are actually tied to VBC. I, I don't remember the number. Va- Value-based care for our... Yeah, sorry. Well, I, you know, the... Yeah. The 17 million people that are watching this show, uh, they, they all know what VBC is. But you know, one of the primary uses of this is for training ground for my employees. You know, they. Ah, okay, 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 okay. <laughs> but yeah, so what's your thoughts on that? Sorry to interrupt, Joe. I mean, everybody's talking about value-based care is the way of the future. But I think particularly if you're looking in the commercial space, value-based care is very few and far between. And I think what we've seen is a lot of arrangements where it's, 
a value-based kicker and that kicker tends to be pretty small. So if it's, you know, you get paid 5% of your overall revenue based on achieving a certain patient outcome, that's still, you're still going to operate like you're in a fee-for-service model because that's 95% of your revenue. You're not going to focus on the 5%. You're going to focus on the 95%. And it's, uh, Eugene, I think it was like a statistic that only 10% of payment is true value-based. And it's, you know, there's upside payment, downside payment. If, if it's just an increase, then people just hope that their care model that they're going to deliver standardly through fee-for-service is going to get them a little bit of bonus on the upside. And they're not even taking any downside risk. Um, and so I, I think that there's a lot of talk and a lot of people are talking about it, but there's there's not really much action. And people can quote these, you know, X percent of our contracts are value-based care, but it's they're not value-based care in in reality because it's such a small percentage of the overall payment that's actually tied to value. Um, and I think a, a lot of these health systems, they're really starting to think about this too, but value-based care basically means if you're going to try to drive value and reduce costs in certain areas, those are going to be specialty care areas. And that's where these massive, massive health systems derive the majority of their revenue. And so they're going to be cannibalizing their own revenue for this value-based care system. And if it's split between the that savings is split between the health plan and the health system, then they're going to be just reducing their revenue overall. And it doesn't make any sense for them. So the until the incentives are really short up, I don't really think we're going to see much progress, at least from the, the large brick and mortar health systems. Especially so as we've seen more and more of, you know, a health plan is also a health system and a health system is also a health plan, right? I mean, it's... Right. Uh... But how would you want, like, so, so you have VBCK, the value-based kicker system, whatever, the value-based kicker system, but it is like, it is... Like, how are you supposed to operate that way? Um, like, I, I've seen that in some of my contracts and some of the, where there's it's not even value-based. It's not even that really. It's almost just a, Hey, if you get these results, you know, almost more kind of a little bit raw kind of results focused, but the idea that you would have a critical pair, a critical company doing, you know, sorry, critical infrastructure and have them possibly go to a loss, you know, isn't that dangerous? 100%. And I think that's one of the reasons a lot of payers won't give startups capitated risk, because if they operate at a loss and they completely go under, then who's who's now financially responsible for you know, the losses that that has been incurred? And so I think we're still a long way, even in the startup world from true value-based care. We have people like Oak Street and the companies that are similar to that. But really, if you look at what they did, they operated in a fee-for-service model, but they operated at a loss while they were collecting the data to show their overall total cost of care cost savings and validating that their model worked. And then they were able to flip the contracts over to true value-based care contracts. And that that takes a lot of guts to do something like that because you're you're not operating for you know seeing exponential revenue growth, which is what investors really like to see. You're really trying to sell people to say, if we are able to build out this value-based care model, then we will be able to achieve these savings. And that's, you know, a next layer of sales that you have to do to an investor or to a, a health plan to be able to get them to buy off on that. So it's, I think it's a long and arduous uh, road to get there. And I commend the people that are actually doing it. I have one more, I mean, I have a zillion more questions for Joe, but I, I think I want to focus on, on one, you know, we talked direct to consumer, we talked kind of the payer health plan, which in theory, if you as a company have shown good outcomes, it is in, in the interest of a health plan to push you to communicate upstream to the members because it works for, for, for you know, procedure X, et cetera. 
Let's talk about employers, right? Um, and, uh, you know, we talked about engagement, the whole PPM model, and I know you and I exchanged, um, you know, some docs and things like that on upstream engagement. Want to know your thoughts, because from an employer perspective, I don't know the stats, but some of it is, well, we need to provide this for our employees, yes, but then there's other things that are kind of more of checkboxes, and that whole chain of communication to the individual employee um, from the bazillion, you know, startups and companies that are out there. I'll pause and hand it off. Yeah, I mean, the Livongo really made the employer channel famous, I think, and I, but I, it's still not a perfect channel for all the reasons that you just highlighted. And I'd love to share battle scars about this, but it's, it's hard to drive enrollment of your solution, whether it's through a health plan or through an employer, because ultimately they they have a finger on your customer acquisition and they can kind of control the the communication cadence uh, because everything has to go through them and so if they throttle your communication then all of a sudden your revenue for that account is significantly throttled because you can't you can't enroll more members and so it is really really difficult but i do think it's if you're operating in the commercial space it's a very very important it's a very important channel you know about probably close to 70% of commercial and uh, health plan members are in a self-funded arrangement right now. And so that's, wow. it's the majority of the market when you're talking commercial. And so it's, you have to figure out how to, how you're going to be able to penetrate that at some point. I think we have people that are doing really innovative things on the, the smaller group side. So companies like Nice Healthcare are targeting more of that 30% and trying to get in on the fully insured book of business. Um, but it's, it's still hard, but it's you're going to have to figure it out at some point if you want to get to get to scale. Awesome. Excellent. Well, we can keep like, you know, taking uh, I, I, I love chatting with you, Joe, just because I think you're, you're tracking a lot of this and applying this kind of in your own growth paths as, as a business. But um, why don't we um, I, I think I'm going to go to Jim Joyce and his you know final question of, <laughs> of, the, of the day, because otherwise we're going to take up hours, honestly, uh, here. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. OK, so you're you, you picture yourself. You're in snowy Minneapolis. You know, you're walking through, um, you know, you're walking through the, what's the called the, the alleyways? What's the, what's the, um, what's the skyways? The skyways. It's like the alleyways. The skyways. You run into an old friend, you go back to Duke. <laughs> you're, you're watching a basketball game. <laughs> I'm drifting you. Right? You're at a basketball game and you, and you bump into this incredibly, you know, charming, kind of aspiring young uh, entrepreneur that has just left, you know, one of the big med tech companies and thinking about starting a new company. And he's, he's completely impassioned with a personal healthcare problem that he's just helped solve for a family member that he loves dearly. What advice would you give to that young entrepreneur that's launching a digital healthcare company? I think the thing that I wish I did earlier was just start sooner. So I think I waited I love the entrepreneurial world. I don't think I'll be able to ever leave it, but I, I wish I got into it sooner. It's You have such a big opportunity to really make a difference in patient outcomes and actually impact people at scale. And I think that opportunity alone to, to impact people is completely unparalleled um, compared to any other opportunity out there. And like I mentioned, that's that's my North Star. And I wish that I had the guts to, to take the dive earlier. So go early. Go, go early, early. And go big. Just do it. Go <laughs> early and go big uh, and make a huge impact. Love it. Yes. On, on that note, Joe, thank you for joining us and to the millions of 
followers and viewers. Uh, share this out, hit subscribe, or pass it on, and we'll hopefully see you next week. We're going to try to stay consistent for the season finale, Jim Joyce. Next week is season finale. All right. Wish, wishing you the best, yeah. Joe. We'll see you on the Twitter sphere. Yep. <laughs> Great Thank you guys so much. Take care. <laughs>